I'd love for you to take it and turn to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue on in our journey of this book. That is a good song, Jeremy. Talks about our Father's love. Mm, it's great. Well, this morning, if you've ever reflected on your life and your Christian life as you walked your life of faith and wonder why sometimes it's so hard to be content with God, we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. If you've ever felt like your faith was, was gone but not really understand why it felt that way, Paul's going to give us some clear guidance this morning, and I think we're going to be able to get something out of it to do that. See, the passage today speaks to both of these questions. And, and we lose our confidence in our faith and in God when we disobey and we pursue false ideas. I mean, that's what happens. We begin to look around at other things that might be more shiny, more enticing than what God offers us. See, we feel unsure of our salvation sometimes when we toy with the distorted ideas of the world. People's distortion of the Bible. People's distorted idea of who God is. And especially their distorted idea of who Jesus Christ is. Well, Paul addresses these things to the Galatians with some stark reminders this morning. Once again, remember, Galatians is a letter written to a group of churches in what we know today as modern Turkey. And it's written to them to correct an error that's going on there. To, to correct an error that they're struggling with. They're struggling with the error that it takes something else besides just Jesus to save their soul. Many times Paul has been very personal in this letter about how he's frustrated with their lack of resistance to this false gospel. And he's writing them with some frustration, some despondency and stuff like that over their error chasing. And Paul steps in now into a kind of a little short, verses 7 through 12, a little short tirade. And it kind of goes all over the map and how he feels about what's going on with them. It's good stuff, but it's kind of disorganized in what we normally see in Paul's writing. But he exhorts the Galatians to avoid listening and entertaining the lies that will put them back in bondage. That's what he's fighting against. Let me read this passage to you and we'll explore it. Starting with verse 7, Paul writes to them and he says, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. We'll talk about that a little bit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of it. And we thank you for what Paul shows us in clear scripture, what the gospel means to our hearts. And how distorting that can be detrimental to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Paul is expressing confidence in the Galatians' faith in this passage. But he, he pronounces some condemnation on the Judaizers. See, our calling to faith in Christ will stand against the false teaching of the world as they wait for judgment day to come. And that's what Paul's trying to help them understand. You may like what you're hearing, but... 
Judgment Day is going to reckon with them for what they've done. So why is our calling sure and the penalty severe? Well, that's what Paul points out here. Paul points to two truths in this passage to answer this question. First, he points to the punishment that's going to come to the false teachers. I'm picking that point first because I like, I like to leave you with good news at the end. So we're going to explore these two truths kind of going through the whole passage because it's not clear. He, split it up, he talks about it in all, all the verses. So first of all, we're going to look at God condemns heretics of the gospel. And that's going to be verses 7 through 9 and 10b and 11 through 12. But he condemns, God condemns the heretics. He says, you're not, you're not, going to, you're not doing the right thing and I'm going to punish you. So Paul pronounces a serious penalty coming for those who will propagate a false gospel. He will. And Paul's telling them in no un, uncertain terms that that's going to happen. So verse 7, he asked... What you were running so well, you were doing so well, what happened? And when he says who disrupted this, Paul, Paul's asking a rhetorical question. He knows. He knows exactly who did this. He probably even knows the names of these guys that are disrupting the churches in Galatia and, and, uh, and messing all of this up. He knows it's the Judaizers. And those are the ones that are saying, you need something besides Jesus to save your soul. Here's circumcision. Here's the Mosaic law. You've got to follow the whole thing. And Jesus. So that's what's going on. He knows who's doing it. Then in verse 8, he kind of assures the Galatians that the one who called them to faith is not the one presenting them this truth. And the reason he says that is because these Judaizers are using the Old Testament. They're pointing to the Old Testament. Hey, here's the law God gave us in, in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Here's the law. You need to follow it. They're pointing to that with the wrong idea, the wrong con uh, context, and the wrong interpretation and also the wrong motive. God is not trying to persuade you to believe a different gospel now. And Paul wants them to understand that. Now these Judaizers, God bless their little hearts, they might have been sincere. They were probably very sincere. They thought they had it right, some of them. I mean, and they probably had a passion for it like Paul does for the gospel. I mean, so they were very convincing, I think, to... to, to uh, to the, the Galatians. But then again, most liars are very convincing because they've gotten good at lying. They've gotten good at backing their arguments for their lies. Paul says their zeal is without truth. He says they're just, they're telling you something, but they're not looking at the whole picture. He says God didn't send them to correct your faith. And then in verse 9, he uses a, an idiom that we see in other places in Scripture. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven's the whole batch of dough. Leaven is just another word for yeast. And in Scripture, it represents, it represents good and bad. Okay? It has, it has two meanings here. Now here, Paul is equating it to the bad teaching of the Judaizers. But it's just yeast. And, and during the Passover time, it's an impurity. It's a mold. You guys should know that. If you've been to your science class in seventh grade, you should know that. It's a mold, so it's an impurity. So in the Passover time frame... You get rid of it. They eat unleavened bread. They, they clean their house spick and span of any kind of mold of any kind so that they're not impure during the Passover. So leaven was a negative thing in that context. But Jesus used it in Matthew and Luke to describe the kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a little leaven that a woman works through the whole batch of dough. It doesn't take but a mustard seed of faith to come to Christ. It's little. So Jesus used it in a positive light. The gospel of Christ will spread from, from small to great, and it has, 
over the centuries. And it, was, it started with 12 guys who followed Jesus around. But right here, like Paul, I said, Paul's tying it to the false teachings. And if you're not careful, false ideas and misnomers that you allow to come into your, your ideas of faith, your doctrine, your church, if you allow those in there, in there, if you're not careful, they can lead a bunch of people astray. They'll confuse many people. And then in verse 10b, which is the second half of verse 10, Paul, Paul makes it very clear that whoever is, that is confusing you will pay the penalty. See, these liars are going to pay a penalty at the end because they've been telling a lie about God. And that's a very serious thing. See, nothing else is necessary for salvation except faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what's necessary. There's no, there's no additives to that. Nothing else is necessary for salvation except faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Their false ideas led to some illogical accusations too. If you look in verse 11, they accused Paul of preaching two gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. For the Jews, he preached circumcision. He preached, hey, you, 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 you go ahead and get circumcised. Well, most Jews he's preaching to have been circumcised, so it didn't really make any sense. And then the Gentiles, he's going, no, no, no circumcision is not required. And he's, they say he's doing this so that he doesn't get in trouble, so he doesn't get persecuted, so he doesn't get ridiculed. I don't know, if, you, if you've read much about Paul, you know he doesn't worry about ridicule or persecution. I mean, when a man can be stoned outside of town and get up and go back in the same town, he's not worried about what you're going to say or think about him. So he's not doing this. It's really illogical. And he's saying, if I was still preaching circumcision, if I was still preaching the law of Moses as a requirement, why am I still being persecuted? And, and when you do that, you take away the offense of the cross. He says, if the cross isn't the only thing that's required people will be happy see human human nature wants to do it ourselves i talked about that last week we want to be able to say look at me look what i did i made myself right with god no you didn't but uh, that's another whole sermon as well he's just basically saying he wouldn't be persecuted see the cross of christ offends people that's why the name jesus offends people that's why people don't like to hear jesus because what what does jesus tell us you can't save yourself you can't make yourself worthy enough to be in the presence of Almighty God. Well, how dare you? I'm a good person. Yeah, by your standard, maybe by my standards, but not by God's standards, and that's who, who rules the universe. So we have to go by that. Paul's gospel offends because it starts with, all have sinned against God. That's, Paul's gospel always starts with that. Jesus is rejected because he says, believe in me and you will be saved. Not do all this stuff and be saved. That's why him and the Pharisees were always butting heads. Because the Pharisees said, well, look what we're doing. We're obeying the Mosaic law. We're doing all this stuff. Paul says, nope, not good enough. That's what Jesus said. So understand something. As you read your scriptures, especially in the book of Acts, Paul wasn't against circumcision in a cultural, social, ethnic situation. Matter of fact, Timothy, who he wrote two letters to, became the pastor at Ephesus later. He had Timothy circumcised because Timothy's mom was Jewish. And it was just a, an ethnic thing. It wasn't because of salvation. It was a, a chance for Timothy to be able to allow access to the temple courts where they were doing a lot of preaching in Jerusalem. So he had a reason behind Timothy. But Titus, in chapter 2, verse 3 of this book, he says Titus wasn't even tempted to get circumcised because Titus is a pure Gentile. 
He's not got any Jewish background. So Paul's not like saying no circumcision. If you get circumcised, you're, you're going to hell because you, he's saying if you're trusting it for salvation, you're going to hell. That's what Paul's really after. So he had Timothy get the mark, but he told Titus not to worry about it. The motive is the reason. Why are you getting this circumcision? Why are you trying to obey the calendar events of the Jewish law? To be saved, it'll fail. And then we get to probably one of the more difficult verses in scriptures, verse 12. Paul gets so frustrated with these Judaizers, he wishes a punishment of mutilation on them. And your, your scripture may read something completely, uh, a little different, a little more specific, um, like emasculate. But the point is, he's frustrated. Now, these people he's talking about are already circumcised, so what he's actually saying isn't going to happen. But what he's talking about is they are, they are enforcing pagan ways on you as Gentile Christians. Because he looks at the Jewish ceremonial laws that are in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. He looks at them now as a pagan religion. They don't get you to God. I'm not talking necessarily about the Ten Commandments, but you don't have to obey them perfectly to be saved. Okay, They're guidance for after you're saved. But Paul is saying... This pagan way of doing things, I wish these guys would just get mutilated somehow, hurt themselves. Maybe it would stop them from spreading this false religion, this false idea. And Paul's frustration, I feel like, is a little like Jesus' frustration when he went into the temple and found them selling and exchanging coins and cheating everybody out of their money. It's like, this ruins my, my father's house. It's to be a house of prayer, not a house of money changers and swindlers. And so the actions that Paul's addressing as well as Jesus, they're, 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 they're against the gospel. And Paul's just hoping that if they wound themselves in doing some of this, they might stop. And so to wrap kind of this up about God condemning the heretics, God will punish those who promote lies about the gospel. And we see a lot of that, and, and we wonder, okay, God, see, point, we want to tattletale on them. God's timing is not our timing. So in the end, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cir pr promote circumcision for you? Cast out demons? I mean, and what did Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. So it will happen. God promises that. Paul warns that it will result in eternal damnation if you do not stop lying about the gospel. And there's many examples in scriptures of this. Of, the, of twisting the truth that leads to punishment. Sometimes instantaneous, instantaneous, that's easy for me to say, punishment. Like Ananias and Sapphira, who lied about giving all the proceeds from property that they sold to the church. They stood at the front of the church and lied about it and died right there. God's punishing them for lying about that and, and discrediting and the Holy Spirit and there's other instances there where people don't necessarily die, but they have bad things happen to them. And it happens. And Jesus warns us of this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 9, he is warning us to, to, to watch out for the distorted truth. And those who use their abilities to bring in distorted truth are going to pay a punishment. He says in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, he says, Woe to the world, meaning the sinful world, Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom offenses, the, the offenses come. 
whoa. You know, I just never like it when Jesus says, whoa. And he says, then he goes on in the same passage, if your hand or foot causes you to fall away, which means to disregard the faith in Jesus Christ, not just to sin. If your hand or foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life, eternal life, maimed or lame, than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. See, God, Jesus has got an eternal focus on this whole thing. He's not talking about, like, in present time. He doesn't want us to cut off our hands and poke out our eyes while we're living here. He's saying, get rid of anything that you're using to distort the truth in your mind. Push it away. And we see distortions of truth in many places today. And I'm going to talk about a few of those real quick here. There's distortions of the Bible. And if you watch any Bible movie or show, you'll see a little bit of dramatic license taken. And sometimes it's, it's okay. Sometimes it leads people down the wrong path. There's many of those issues that come up. But the most devastating thing that we hear today is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's the most devastating thing. And there are several versions out there, and you can probably fit anything you've heard in, into one of these categories. First, there's the pro prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is? It says, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get all this material wealth. You'll be blessed. You'll have health and security. That's the prosperity gospel. You'll get a better life now. Oh, really? See, the TV, the radio, the internet, they're used to spread this, and it's everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. I, I spent six weeks in Madagascar in the bush for, for, for half a week. They know it out there. One, because they all have cell phones and they talk to people, but they got, they got internet out there. You want a better life? Trust Jesus. You want a better life now? Just believe in Jesus. It's kind of what I call the American dream gospel. You can go on, I think, uh, either Netflix or Amazon Prime, and you can see a, a, a documentary, about a two-hour documentary on the American gospel. I encourage you to watch it. It talks about this very gospel that is spreading. The reason you suffer or have needs is you don't accept Jesus. That's what they tell you. Your health is because you're not trusting Jesus. You not believe in him. This version promises everything but what it was intended to promise. Salvation. They may add that on the end. This lie has spread all over the world. I've had Christians from other nations ask me as an American Christian, can y'all please stop that? Can y'all pull the plug on that? Can y'all stop it from spreading? It's hard for us to witness to our neighbors when they see it on TV that, oh, if you believe, you're going to have a healthy, wealthy life. But I don't have that. I, believe, I thought I believed, and now they don't want to listen to us present the gospel. It goes on. It's frustrating. But that's the prosperity gospel. The second is the distorted gospel. Believe in Jesus in a certain way, with certain deeds, and you will be saved. That's the distorted gospel. And basically, sometimes it, it just basically assumes that everybody that says they believe in Jesus knows God's commands. Or we add certain behaviors to their conversion, like we expect you to believe, be, act this way because you profess faith in Christ. We, fi we find ourselves doing it, okay? I'm, I'm being honest, I do too. We, we may not say it out loud, but what we do is we imply it. Like, like they say they're a Christian, but they sure don't act like it. 
Or how can they call themselves Christians? See, we have this expectation of certain behaviors from who, people who profess to believe in Christ, but we have it without ever teaching them those behaviors. We assume everybody's got a Bible. I've given out more Bibles since I got here in three years than I thought I'd ever give out in the middle of United States of America. People don't have a Bible. We assume every household out here has a Bible. We assume everybody's read it too, which is a bad assumption. Even, even among genuine bona fide believers, we haven't all read it as much as we should. We should be teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, we're making bad assumptions that people know automatically because they've been saved. Yeah, they're a new creation. Yes, they now have the ability in the Holy Spirit to obey, but they've got to be taught. They've got to be taught. We try to condemn them to obey. We try to look down our nose and point their, our fingers at them. We, we scold them to get them to act better. Or sometimes we just shut them out till they behave better. Then they can come back. That's just the wrong attitude. That's the distorted gospel. And the third one is there's no gospel. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no Jesus. There's no God. We don't promote that one, hopefully. But um, we, we, people believe that, and the world's, this one's their favorite. The world tells this one loud and clear. And, and we sometimes participate in this one when we keep our mouth shut. And we don't talk to people about the truth of Jesus Christ. God will judge them one day for not believing. And we know that's going to come at the end. But hopefully we've spoken up. Hopefully we've given them an opportunity to hear and gain knowledge about the gospel. By how we talk. But God will judge all of these one day. And sometimes they'll punish some, some, he may punish some of them now. In the present life. But at the end it's going to be very bad. I want us to be part of the only gospel crowd. The only gospel. God sent Jesus as God and man to pay a death sentence for us on the cross so that we could be right with a holy God when we believe and repent. That's the only gospel there is. That's the only gospel we have. And we need to be promoting that. When we speak this gospel and point God, people to God's word, Saved souls will believe, they'll repent, and they'll begin to live like a new creation. And we need to help them do that. As Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God lasts forever. And by the word of truth, their souls can be changed. So, point number one, God will prosecute for false versions of the gospel. But when he saves, it's forever. He saves forever when he calls people to to believe God calls believers to faith forever verse verse 7 Paul says you were running well Paul inserts some reassurances in this passage in several places um, they were running well the race of faith now Paul uses that metaphor several times throughout his writings of running a race of keeping on the right path and and pursuing the goal that's at the finish line he says you were running well you were doing so good and even though they had tripped up momentarily by entertaining this false gospel, Paul assures them they're on the right path of faith, what they believed before. And see, Paul can assert this idea because in verse 8 where he says, this persuasion does not come from the one who calls you, Paul can assert this because he knows who called them. He knows when they were called. He was there. 
He witnessed it. He's an eyewitness to their conversion. And when God calls the lost to faith, he never releases them from it. I know that's going to kind of stick in your mind a little bit because you've probably seen people you thought were a Christian, but they've walked away from the faith. We don't know if they'll ever return. Maybe they will, but God knows. See, when, when God saves, there's no resisting him. When God wants to save a soul, whenever it happens, there's no resisting him. Now, they can sit in church for their entire life and at 99 on their deathbed accept Christ. That's just the way God works sometimes. Praise the Lord, he does. But when, when God wants to save, there's no resisting him. His power to save overcomes all human interference. I mean, if you know somebody that came out of maybe the drug culture and got saved and their life is definitely saved and changed, you know what God's power can do. You've seen it firsthand. God's call of salvation, his call of justification, his call of regeneration of a soul, it guarantees everlasting life in heaven forever. You can't lose it if you ever had it. And that's the question, that's the thing we need to keep in our mind when we wonder about some people. Well, they may have never had it. So what do we do? We keep witnessing to them. We keep encouraging them. We keep pointing them back to God's word. See, there's many passages in Scripture to, to point out God's sovereign control of the souls of men. The irresistible call of God is something you cannot walk away from. When it's on a soul, they will believe and repent. God knows who he will save. And it's not our job to figure that out. It's our job to tell people, okay? Here's some passages. I would like for you to write them down somewhere on your notes and, and take them home and read them to understand God's calling on a soul. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 30. Romans 9, 24. And if you don't get these, I can get them to you afterwards. Romans 11, 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Ephesians 1, 11. Ephesians 3, 11. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Hebrews 9.15, 1 Peter 2.9, and 1 Peter 3.9. And that's just a smattering, okay? There's many more, but these are more of the blatant ones. But see, we, we struggle sometimes with our salvation, doubting it, and a lot of these doubts that we have and these fears we have we, that we encounter are really of our own making. They really are. Um, and like these, it's like these Galatians who are toying with a false gospel. So they're now doubting whether Paul told them what the truth was. And that's why Paul wrote the letter. But God, when God calls, the heart changes. When he calls us, the heart will change. Faith is granted and a believer is born. And then they live out their faith with fear and trembling. Not fear like scared of something, but fear as in reverent awe of God and what his righteous word says. And trembling because we're very careful about trying to obey God's word after we are saved. I mean, instantly these all things happen. God calls and you believe, and, and it's kind of instantly. But the rest of our life is what we use to make our calling and election sure in our own minds and our own hearts. In verse 10a, the first part of verse 10, Paul says, I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. Paul's convinced. They're Christians. They know Christ. They've been saved. They've been born again. I don't have to worry about that. I'm not really worried about it except that you're following something and you're toying with something. So he was convinced that the Galatians were born again. 
But his reliance or, or his belief in that wasn't in a reliance on the Galatians and their behavior. It was in the reliance on God who said he saved them. And, and Paul witnessed that salvation. Paul witnessed them getting the Holy Spirit. He was there when it happened. He saw God change them. So their souls will stand against the onslaught of lies and deceit that's going on. Their faith in Christ is secure. One good illustration in our Bible is Rahab, the Jericho prostitute. Most of you may not even know exactly who she is, but she was a prostitute in the town of Jericho in the book of Joshua. And they were coming in to take that town, the children of Israel. And she believed God could take that town, even though it had super thick walls and everything. But her faith in God to save was more than just a faith to save physically. It was a faith to save spiritually. She is mentioned two other times in the New Testament, the New Testament, about her faith in God to save. Just like Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, Rahab believed and it was credited to her as righteousness. So when God calls a soul to faith, that soul will answer and never truly walk away, even if we think they did. And that gives us comfort as believers. It should give us comfort as believers to know we can't walk completely away from God. No matter how hard we try, God's always nibbling at us and pulling us back. See, God calls the soul to believe, which Jesus said was the primary work we're supposed to do. In John 6, 28, they ask, what can we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. That's first, that's primary. Believe in Jesus Christ. So then how does assurance stay in solid in our lives? Well, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 10-11, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided to you. So we stay close to him. We, we look to obey him as believers. We obey to convince our own feeble minds that God has redeemed us. That's the hard thing for us to do sometimes. We live out our faith, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. Express it. Show the world that you have changed, that Jesus has changed your heart. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians to do. And when the world attacks our faith, we don't need to panic. Our truth that they attack, we can counter with the truth of Scripture. I don't have to justify Scripture as my source of why I believe what I believe. I don't have to do that. I, I just point them to the scriptures. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says. Well, I don't believe in God. That's not my problem. As a matter of fact, that's your, your problem. That's your number one problem. And we have a conversation about it, but there's no argument that can conquer God's word. They may believe something different, but it's not true. So it didn't conquer. It didn't win. God's word doesn't need book, man's books to defend it. It doesn't need man's history. It doesn't need man's archaeology to defend it. That's all good stuff, and I love it. I love history and archaeology as much as the next person. But it's not what's needed for your faith to stay whole and stay on, on target. Our faith is in the Creator, not the created. That's where our faith is supposed to be, in the Creator, not the created. So when the world tries to cancel our belief, 
you're, you're not, your, your voice doesn't matter here because you don't believe anything but the Bible. Okay. That's your, that's your, your loss, not mine. You can't cancel me. We just keep on believing. True believers know that trials that we face, these kind of trials, are God's appointed means to refine our faith, to make us stronger in our faith, to give us clarity of our faith, to drive out the doubt and drive in the assurance. We just keep on believing. We keep on believing that heaven is our home. That's where we're bound. That's the race we're running. See, we are saved through faith alone, but that faith is never left alone by God. He wants you to express it, to develop it, to cultivate it. As we saw last week, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself, working through love. It is an active faith that seeks to follow God. That's what our faith is supposed to be doing. And wherever we are, often there's difficulties that arise in the Christian life when believers begin to doubt the truth of the gospel. They begin to toy with that distorted truth they've heard or some other idea. But these persecutions are just momentary. And these trials are meant to make you stronger in your faith and push you toward God. They're meant to be momentary. They're definitely insignificant in the light of his glory and grace. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. When God saves you, believe it and live it. That's what we're here to do. He didn't leave you down here just to sit and soak. He wants you to express it. Don't let anyone or anything talk you into doubt. If you doubt, check your obedience to God's word. That's what I encourage people. If you're doubting your salvation, make sure there's not some pet sin you're holding back or some hidden sin that you've not owned up to. Check your obedience in your disciplines. Am I reading my Bible fervently, like focused on it, not just reading like a novel? Read your Bible, study it, get to know it. Most likely when we've got some doubt, we've strayed from obeying. Obeying the sins of omission or commission. So we need to confess, we need to repent, we need to believe. And watch the assurance come rolling back into our lives. So let me sum up. God will punish those who distort the gospel, but he saves a soul. And when he does, it is forever and ever and ever. See, when our faith feels flat, dull, or empty, Paul says, remember who your faith is in. See, the Galatians, that letter, this letter is where truth and error come head to head. They face off in this letter. It's a struggle for the souls of humanity, especially the souls of the Galatians, and now us, because we can read it and study it. And we face that same struggle today. I went through the, gospel, the false gospels that we hear out there. The stakes are very high. Because when we're faced with the cross of Christ, we have two choices. Reject or believe. That's the only two choices there really are. There's no middle ground. There's no agnosticism that says, oh, it doesn't exist, so it doesn't exist. There's only two choices. And believer, if you have accepted the cross of Christ, you have trusted that cross, live like you have. Let your calling and election be sure and seen in front of people. Tell others about Jesus. That's one of the best ways to strengthen your faith. It doesn't have to produce results necessarily. We leave that up to God. Just share it. Share what you believe about your Savior. And if you want to talk to us about becoming a full member of this church, we'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. I can definitely do that for you. 
Now, if you don't have any assurance about your faith in Jesus Christ, you can. You can trust Jesus. Faith believes with a strong conviction that I trust you, Jesus, your death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins and the adoption into your family. You believe without any reservations. You don't hold anything back. You believe at all that Jesus is sufficient and him alone. And then we repent. We turn away from everything else we've been trusting in. Everything that we've depended on to get us right with God or even just to get through life, we repent from that. We turn away from that and trust only in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Forgiveness is always about Jesus only. And that's what's primary. Believe in the one he sent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel. The assurance and the comfort of it. That we know that when you call us, it is forever. And our faith doesn't have to wonder. Our faith doesn't have to lack assurance. Our faith can trust you completely, eternally. May we express it. May we correct the false gospels that are out there when we can. May we do so with love and gentleness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song. For God to open our eyes that we may see the truth of his word.